Welcome to Procurement Reimagined, a podcast by Gatekeeper. We believe traditional procurement has had its day, the world is changing, and our industry needs to change with it. On the podcast, we share the best practices to help you streamline your procurement processes, navigate vendor onboarding, and ultimately get the most value out of your vendor contracts. I'm your host, Daniel Barnes. Jen, could you explain your role to me as though I'm a five-year-old? I can, because I've actually been saying the same thing for 20 years. And that is, I buy stuff with other people's money. And that's been my slogan for a long time. And yeah, we do it a bit differently now, but that's kind of what we do at the base element. So yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's a really good way to describe it. And also, when we think about how to get new people into the profession, that's like a really good one-liner to be like, hey, you can actually come spend thousands, hundreds of thousands, tens of millions, maybe more, well, for other people's money. Like, well, how is that not fun? Like, spending money is normally pretty fun for most people. It is. I love shopping. So that's probably why I've stayed in it this long. Yeah, vicariously shopping for your business. Sometimes the purchases are a little bit weird. I've brought some really odd stuff. Yeah, some really weird stuff, especially in defense. Yeah, defense is cool. Heard this guy speak. He's like, yeah, I just bought 10,000 like choppers. So just so interesting. And I'm like, oh, I bought toilet paper during COVID and that was really hard to get. Well, I never got to buy choppers or anything because I kind of worked at like the really early stage. So I was buying all like the research around like helicopters in like 20 years time. And so we were just like buying intellectual property. It's kind of interesting if you're a nerd, but if you actually want to like get your hands on something or go sit in a tank, it's probably not the best area. I was stalking your LinkedIn just this morning and just what my researchers showed. You've got quite a prominent role in ESG now as well, right? I do. Could you just tell me a little bit? Yeah, I've had a passion for insert word here, insert acronym here, CSR, ESG, sustainability for quite a long time. You know, essentially starting with the we buy stuff, how do we buy stuff better and how do we buy that stuff to keep that stuff going for as long as possible. So ESG as a project called it Sustainable Sourcing Program. I started that four years ago at NATA. And out of that, I guess, came one idea, and that was there was non-slavery legislation changing in Australia, and there was no clear guidelines for how to get the information that was needed from the suppliers. So I said, why don't we put a group of people in the room, suppliers, customers, lawyers, and procurement people who might actually care about this stuff, not because they have to. And out of that, came a fantastic experience and a collaboration and co-creation of a single document. Now, that's not formalized. It's not government approved. Didn't have to be. It's an SAQ. But from doing that's then led to other projects where suppliers that were once total competitors are now coming together to work for solutions and for greater good. So that's the project that came out of that sustainable sourcing program first. And then there's been a number of other projects that have come out of that, especially around the packaging space, different changes in legislation that are happening here to reduce waste, whether that's polystyrene or, you know, my big focus now is around the circular economy. So how are we going to take this mouse or this phone and make that usable in some way, shape or form for its most 
amount of time. So cradle to cradle. And because of all of that, because of those projects and that interest and taking everyone on that journey, we actually rebranded ourselves into a completely new business unit, complete with logo. So we're now the Procurement and Sustainable Solutions. So not only are we procuring things for companies and head up a buying group, not only are we procuring things, we're actually creating solutions for the companies that we're working with to ensure they can be sustainable and sufficient in the future. So that's been really exciting and that's passion and it's something I think I'll hang my hat on and it's exciting. And that's pretty much where the brand strategy idea and the brand strategy conversation came from because I guess culminating in your own logo, there was a lot leading up to that, right? You didn't someday, one day just wake up and go, I'm going to create a logo. You actually need substance behind it. And so that's why this brand planning, this brand strategy and understanding who you are is so important before you get to the logo. Yeah, that's actually incredible. Just listening to you talk about that. It kind of feels like you were doing it before it was... I feel like a trend is the worst word, but it kind of does feel like there's a trend element and not in like a horrible way in that people are actually picking up on it now. It kind of feels like you were early to start thinking about it in such a way. Just going on to the procurement branding, could you kind of define or give your definition of what a procurement brand strategy is? I'm really interested as well, like this, the whole logo piece as well just sounds incredible. So I think the first step is obviously purpose. It is the basic old, let's get in a room as procurement team. So not bringing in outside, yes. Let's sit in a room and what is our purpose? What is our buying stuff with other people's money? And we need to define what that is and we need to get behind it because if you don't believe in it and your people don't believe in it, it's not going to succeed. So all of this top down, let's get support, everyone love each other kind of thing, that doesn't work unless you have all co-created that single purpose together. Now, if your company is any good, you've got values, you've got goals, you've got all those things to underpin that anyway. But the key to me is starting with purpose. So, for example, ours is, it mightn't sound sexy, but it's, you know, collective scale and scope to deliver the best value possible for organizations with leading practice processes in the most sustainable, efficient way. So, you know, it's simple messages, doesn't sound 100% sexy when you're saying that, but it gives you a vision of, I know what these people do. The other thing is time. So time is really important. If you don't devote time to these things and to growing it, then it's not going to happen. It's not a set and forget. You have people coming in of your team and out of your team. You know, you lose experience, but you gain perspective. And that is something that we really utilize, that it's wonderful someone's going on the next part of their journey. But wow, you know, look at what we've got here. We've got someone who's come from a completely different industry, could not even be procurement. What do they have to add to the strategy as it keeps evolving? So to me, For strategy itself, it's having that identity and understanding who we are as a team and what we can offer the business that we work in. Yeah, 
it's a really nice way of looking at it. I think a lot of procurement teams struggle for one, just even telling their colleagues what they actually do. <laughs> like just your one-liner works perfectly, right? Like we buy stuff with other people's money or your budgets, for example. And there seems to be a lot of struggle around that. But then just like what you're doing is kind of moving beyond just the simple buy now, right? Like with the, you mentioned earlier on the circular economy piece, I think it's going to be massive the whole ESG sustainability, whatever we're going to call that practice, it feels like a really big value add, not just for the business, but like for your supply chain. That's incredible. Like just thinking about like, I don't think a lot of procurement teams in the position your procurement team is in, right? Like you kind of mentioned like, this isn't a set and forget. This requires a lot of effort, a lot of input. People come in and out of your team and things like that. We've kind of got that vision of like what we are, what we do, but like, how do they convey like, oh, we want to start doing this. Like, how do they get like the sign-offs to enable this maybe from whoever they report into? Maybe it's the CFO. Like, I feel like there's going to be some practical challenges there. Yeah, and I think it does depend, obviously, which sector you're in. So if you're in government, you know, if you're in defence, you can't just go off with some airy-fairy, you know, let's all be wonderful situation. You've got safety. You've got, you know, really critical things. You need to do your job, right? Having a brand strategy doesn't mean be like marketing and just be conceptual. You still have to do your job. What it means, though, is other people are clear about what your job is, which then gives us a tangible value to the business. And anything that has a value can be marketed and bought. So we're just trying to sell. What do we have to sell? I have, you know, said that time is one of the biggest things. So we have been working on this for four years doesn't mean if you see me saying that and you go, well, I can't be bothered four years is a long time. Like I said, journey from four years ago to logo is a decent amount of time. But you have to, I guess, whether it's, you know, a blue sky session in your weekly meeting for 10 minutes, even if it's just that, starting somewhere to think about more than just what you're doing for that week is, that's how we started was we blue sky. In terms of kind of the next steps, you do need buy-in from the people around you. And so I have always found, and this was something I got from being in agriculture and that was fantastic. So the 360 degree feedback process they used was good, difficult, different. And it's very non-confrontational as a micro skill. So what's good about something or a person? So you get this as performance feedback. What's difficult, so you rather than say that person's really hard to work with and I hate them, you can talk about scenarios or situations that was difficult. But then when you talk about what's different, the onus is on you, right? So if that situation was difficult, what would you do differently? Take accountability for your part. What was your role? And so when we were going through this initial process, and we still do it, We actually survey not just as a buying group our customers, but my manager. I survey my team on me, you know, our CFO on us as a team. And we gathered all this feedback for two reasons. One, because we need to hear it and we need to be honest with ourselves and we need to be authentic. And I think that's why you were mentioning this before that maybe we're ahead and maybe that we've succeeded where perhaps others have failed, you've got to be authentic. So by getting that shows you've got skin in the game and you've got to confront sometimes stuff isn't great that you've been doing and that's okay because you've asked the question and then you've 
can find a way to do it better. That to me is the critical step for getting your other stakeholders on board. Take them on the journey because when they trust you and they know you care about their opinion, they're likely to ask for your opinion. And it shows that you have emotional intelligence as a team and that ultimately is probably that step. Needs to be accessible, right? Whatever you're solving, whatever you're offering needs to be accessible. So, yeah, YouTube videos and LinkedIn pages, you know, podcasts, they're really good. Some people just like to read. They want to be communicated to in the time frame they do. So they don't want to get a blast in their inbox every day. They might want to get it once a month or once a quarter because they're busy or they just don't care that much about procurement. So for me, it needs to be adaptable, your solution, and just meaningful. And for me, that word authentic. And accept that it's a growing and evolving strategy or solution or path that you're on and you're not always going to get it right. But if you keep checking in, you keep doing your GDDs, you keep asking questions, then you're more likely to have your stakeholders be encouraged by it and even have their own suggestions. And the biggest win for us was working with marketing because we actually turned it around and said, you're the best at marketing, so help market us. And so we went to the B2C marketing team and we said, how do we market ourselves? So that's probably the big ones for me. Did marketing suggest anything Oh yeah, wild or was it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I actually have loved this experience and it continues. So for example, this week we were stalking a competitor who was, I love their website. And I'm like, why isn't our website like this? You know, we need to do it better. And I'm like, let's not plagiarize, but how do we do this better? And it's a case of you're not always going to have the funds. You're not always going to have the money, but what can you do? You can update your content. You can update your images. You can make them more relevant. I think where people get lazy is they do this set and forget for sales. If you put content on a page, four weeks later, it's probably out of date. So you're going to have to update it. There's no one else to do it. Everyone's tapped. So you have to take ownership. And if you want the content updated and you want to make more sales, it's on you. So, and I think when marketing are always good that when they see that you are starting to play by their rules, they're quite happy again to get involved in your game. And it's been really fun, actually. Yeah, I'm kind of selfishly asking, by the way, here, because like I left procurement and contract management and dive now, like I work in marketing, right? And it's been like a weird year for me. Just like the change is so drastic, but like I could completely agree with so much of what you just said there. And also like just being envious of like other websites or just like other content. And they're lovely people. Like I know quite a few of them really well and I respect what they do like as procurement professionals, but still I'm like human. Like it's just like there's so many great things that I know we could do. And that's also the hard part is when you've got a team that's revved up and you've got the ideas and you're getting the runs on the board and you kind of hit maybe your budget capacity or, you know, your resource capacity and there isn't anything more. You know, it's managing those expectations because it's fun, it's great and wonderful for the team to be involved in, but you also need to be cleared with a plan and a timeline of this is what we can achieve now. 
because if you set unrealistic expectations, either for yourself, for your team or your stakeholders, if you don't achieve those, they're probably going to back off because it's all based on trust. Yeah, that was super interesting. It's just like my how I'm kind of summarizing it is there's a lot of EQ involved here, like a lot of emotional intelligence that feels like a huge one. And coming back to my point earlier, it sounds like you're very advanced. And I speak to a lot of people in procurement and contract management and EQ, people mention that to me all the time. And like, we need to get better at emotional intelligence. It really does feel like it's a bit of a secret weapon in terms of getting things or getting across a message better to not just within your team, but like you say, to marketing, to your CFO, to whoever. No, I really like that. And the 360 degree surveys, I've done those in the past and they are the one word I always think of regarding those is like they're exposing in a good way, right? Because to your point, accountability and authenticity come out of them. And I say, you know, we talk about emotional intelligence, right? And we talk about feedback's a gift and I love taking it. No, when I have to read it, I have to have a box of tissues and a glass of wine because I'm still going to be upset by some of it. But, you know, their feelings aren't facts and my feelings aren't facts. That's their interpretation and my interpretation, but it's their feedback. So I have to take it in the way that it was given. You know, you take these things, you know, that sometimes you have to take things with a grain of salt. If you know that you've had a previous run-in with someone, it could be taking the opportunity, stub the knife in. But if you've got passion and you actually care about your job, you should probably need a box of tissues. Because you know when you've put your all into something, if it hasn't landed and it hasn't worked, like that's really tough. And you'll get over it, you know, once you've used the tissue in five minutes or 10 minutes or the next day. But having caring shows that it's important. So I guess for me, emotional intelligence doesn't mean I'm big and strong and I don't cry. It means you care enough. It's almost the opposite. You- it is. You know when to take that as a lesson and not to take it to heart. Yeah, I really like how you just put that. It's really interesting listening to you talk about it like this, because sometimes I feel like I talk to procurement professionals who kind of just ended up doing procurement and they do it. It kind of pays all right, covers the bills, but the passion the care factor kind of is missing. And I do really feel like sustainability and whatever we've kind of put under that can maybe get a bit more out of people, get them a bit more passionate than maybe just buying something with someone else's money. Like like you said, like buying toilet paper or whatever during COVID. Not necessarily like you can sometimes sit down at the end of the day and think like, was what I did today like really worthwhile? Like could my time have been spent better when you throw sustainability into the mix, a circular economy, things like that? I really start to, I think the answer is overwhelmingly positive as opposed to, oh, I just brought some bog roll. It's maybe not a good use of my time. But to be fair, I use that as an example because I remember a friend in years ago, not in a department saying, in another department saying, all you do is buy toilet rolls and pens and paper. And I'm like, well, you'd be pretty hard-pressed to go all day without using the toilet and toilet paper, but give it a go. I'm quite happy to remove it all when you're going. So I said, everyone has a place. You know, you might feel it's all equal, but we all have our place. In the pandemic, you know, that was one of the items that was on the critical list. No one could get it, right? And suddenly everyone's looking at procurement. I said to the team, we always, and even me, I always say, We're not saving lives in procurement, at least my type of procurement. But 
I could see the direct correlation in a retail buying group between being able to obtain those nasal swabs, those tests, those rap tests, and getting them in the hands of the people in the distribution centres who were making sure that we had food on our tables every day and then getting them out to stores where people could test themselves so that they didn't take COVID back to their families. That was hard because government was taking them all and, you know, it was, you know, we had COVID, we were sick. And I said, when we got through it and we had our over Zoom celebration with wine, I said, we'll look back on this and say, we probably did save lives by doing this. And that was working through a stationary company doing the basic stuff that we've always done. So I think that also helped us to look at things differently because it's not always linear, right? The whole supply chain and the people part of the supply chain, I think, became more visible during the pandemic. So I think that was a good lesson for everyone. Yeah, I feel like that's the part that it was horrible during it, those couple of years. It was tough environment to be buying in, but like the people element has kind of, I feel like it's remained, it's some organizations kind of withdrawn a bit from it, but I feel like that's been the biggest lesson learned and like how you can really make a big change in your supply chain. Yeah. I think how we work with each other is something I don't want to lose. You know, we've seen carbon emissions return. You know, there's more cars on the road than ever before. There's some battles that at the moment we haven't, you know, won, but I am really hoping that the things like sitting around in your pyjamas and having a laugh and having a cry and having a smile and talking about random topics, essentially, if anyone filmed you, it would probably be doing your own podcast, you know, sitting there for four hours on a Friday night, just talking about stuff with your colleagues, that communication, that openness and that freedom to share I hope we don't lose that. And it's funny, people are talking about, we need to get back in the office to, you know, to collaborate. Everyone needs to be together. I've never collaborated with people more than I did being at home. So I don't know when I get to the office on my computer, when I'm basically at work, I just often don't have lunch. It's really quiet. Nothing is, (laughs) kind of people don't say anything. And I'm the noisy one, so people are like, Chen, you're not making enough noise. So I bought in Nerf guns and games and things just so the guys could start shooting Nerf guns around. But, yeah, I hope we don't lose that completely because that was the good part. That's the good stuff. Yeah, I'm with you on that. No, it's been great. I'm very conscious of time, so I'm going to wrap this up and just going to ask you some really – these are quick-fire questions. You can answer them however you want, as much detail, as little detail as you want. And like I said before, we started recording, hopefully give people a really good comparison if they're, say, working in a different industry to you, kind of what you're dealing with here and be a, perhaps an eye-opener in one way or another. So how many vendors or suppliers do you work with? So vendors don't have many, very streamlined. So about 40 vendors because we don't have panels, really. We spend a lot of time building a relationship. And then once we max that out in terms of the business we can give to them, then we'll go further. But really, it's about growing a partnership with a partner and then building further on that within the category and within the industry. Yeah. Oh, I just love everything you're saying. Like, this is really rare. That approach is almost unheard of with I talk to a lot of people and this is not the normal things that they say to me. So that's incredible. And I guess, like, by and large, like, is it like a very similar number of, like, main contracts that you have as well? 
Yeah, so in terms of categories and contracts, it's only as we're developing new products, and this is kind of going the next level, where we're getting involved in the engineering and we're actually going to companies and introducing, okay, he's the designer of the packaging and he's you, the customer. How can we facilitate, you know, a circular economy, reuse packaging, which you guys have over in Europe and we don't here, unfortunately. Oh, really? Yeah, we don't have anything like that here. So, well, not to my knowledge anyway. So that procurement engineering side is something now that we're trying to do. So when there is a market, people want something, but the market doesn't exist. That's where we're then growing a new contract. So that's fairly exciting. Yeah, that is really exciting, actually. Wow. I get a lot of sticks sometimes on LinkedIn because I talk about like procurement so much more than just buying. Like there's a lot of value-add activities and people are like, yeah, well, what are these value-add activities? Everything you've just mentioned is, this is the walk-in definition of the value-add that procurement can provide. Wow. What's one piece of tech? It could be software, hardware that you couldn't live without. And it doesn't have to be related to buy-in, procurement, any just one piece of tech. Well, I forgot my phone when I went to the shop this morning and the lady at Target said, I did that once and I nearly had a panic attack. So I thought, great, we've just come together with that mutual feeling. So I guess hardware, I would probably say my phone. Software, I have to say chat GPT. I can't help myself. I'm finding myself, I think I'm almost on my third date, I think, with chat GPT. Like I am talking to that thing all the time. Love it. And I love to write. So I do just ask it to rewrite my stuff occasionally. So I don't think you should be worried about that. Like there seems to be a really big stigma. Like I'm in marketing now, right? I make a lot of content and I kind of like trained, like I've got AI and Notion that I use where I put all my notes and I get it to make stuff for me all the time now. And I can just like play around with a bit. It's I almost feel like I'm in it 90 to 100% of my tasks AI touched in some way now, which is like six months ago, there was nothing. Yeah. And I've now taught my team. I'm like, this is what it is. Here's some search strings, have a play with it. Guys like, oh my God, this is amazing. Absolutely. And they're like, oh, you know, this is going to save us so much time. You've got other people saying, oh, you know, it's going to stop people learning or, you know, what are you paying them for if they're using AI? And I think I I was talking about this with a friend and said, for me, the difference is AI will probably have the answers, but it won't have the questions and also won't have the passion and the drive to see them succeed. And to me, that's where you'll always need us. Yeah, I'm with you. I really like how you just said that. Just maybe to share a little story here, like at Gatekeeper, one of our company-wide OKRs for this period, particularly sort of September time, is everyone needs to use AI or figure out how to use AI to get, there's no percentage on it yet, but like to get better at what we do or do it in a more efficient manner. So it's like, it's great that you're teaching your team. There's so much opportunity there. Last question, always the slightly weird question I find is like, I've asked this a lot now, but I'm your procurement genie. You've got one wish. What's your wish? So I almost answered this in the last one, but I did actually ask GPT what the answer to this question was. And this is what it said. As an AI language model, I don't have personal wishes or desires. However, if you're looking for assistance, blah, 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 blah. As someone that's just talked about all my personal feelings, desires, emotions, and all of that, I guess 
I don't ever want AI to be feeling those things because that is human. If I had one wish, it would simply be that we all came together and to do things better, create better, make things last longer. I don't want it to sound like Miss America or the Miss Universe competition, but I don't think it's as hard as everyone makes it out to be. So let's just try and do better. Yeah. Jen, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. Procurement Reimagined is brought to you by Gatekeeper. To find out more about Gatekeeper and how our vendor and contract lifecycle management solution is delivering visibility, control, and compliance to our customers, visit www.gatekeeperhq.com. And then make sure to search for Procurement Reimagined in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Gatekeeper, thanks for listening.